0: Barefooting with Sierra uses Buzzsprout. Just start with the equipment you already have and a quiet space. Add Buzzsprout and your podcast is ready to go. You'll get a great looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to show how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. Following the link in the show notes lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan and help support the show. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout and get your message out to the world. Sorry about the long break between episodes. I got strep throat and then had some technical difficulties, but now I'm back with a double interview episode. Hello and welcome to Barefooting with Sierra, 36th episode. This podcast was recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional land, gathering place, and traveling route of the Cree, Anishinaabe, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, Nakota Sioux, and others for time immemorial. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist, and I've been living without shoes since 2010. I alternate between using she, her, and they, them pronouns. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. In this episode, I interviewed actress Diane Scott about her pit bull rescues, and journalist Tony Russo about his new book, Dragged Into the Light. I'm going to break this podcast up into four parts, novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my professional life. I will give you updates on what I'm working on, let you know about any new works you can see, and keep you in the know about when I do free book giveaways on Amazon. Let's get started. First up, novels. I'm now about halfway through edits of my Red 72 finale, Red 72 Revelation. I'm getting really excited to finish it up. In novel news, 2021's Pulitzer Prize winners have been announced. Louise Erdrich won the fiction category for The Night Watchman, a majestic polyphonic novel about a community's efforts to halt the proposed displacement and elimination of several Native American tribes in the 1950s, rendered with dexterity and imagination. I just finished reading The Night Watchman, and I highly, highly recommend it to everyone who cares about Indigenous issues, and also to everyone who grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In the drama category, Katori Hall's The Hot Wing King, quote, a funny, deeply felt consideration of Black masculinity and how it is perceived, filtered through the perception of a loving gay couple and their extended family as they prepare for a culinary competition, end quote. In the history category, Franchise The Golden Arches in Black America by Marcia Chatelaine, a nuanced account of the complicated role the fast food industry plays in African-American communities a portrait of race and capitalism that masterfully illustrates how the fight for civil rights has been intertwined with the fate of black businesses, end quote. Les and Tamara Payne won the biography category for The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, quote, a powerful and revelatory account of the civil rights activist, built from dozens of interviews, offering insight into his character, beliefs, and the forces that shaped him, quote. In the poetry category... Natalie Diaz's post-colonial love poem, a collection of tender, heart-wrenching, and defiant poems that explore what it means to love and be loved in an America beset by conflict. In the general non-fiction category, Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898, and The Rise of White Supremacy by David Zucchino, a gripping account of the overthrow of the elected government of a black-majority North Carolina city after Reconstruction, that untangles a complicated set of power dynamics cutting across race, class, and gender. There are several journalism awards focusing on coverage of the pandemic and racial issues. Darnella Frazier won a special award, quote, for courageously recording the murder of George Floyd, a video that spurred protests against police brutality around the world, highlighting the crucial role of citizens in journalists' quest for truth and justice, end quote. All descriptions came from the Pulitzer Prize website. Congratulations to all of those winners. Washington State University's Special Collections Archives has acquired first editions of the Jane Austen novels Emma, Mansfield Park, Northanger Abbey, and Persuasion, left to the university in her will by alumnus Lorraine Hannaway, class of 1949. Emma and Mansfield Park are triple-decker editions, which were popular in the Victorian era when books were too expensive for individuals to purchase for themselves libraries would purchase the books published in three parts so people could check out and return them quicker. Now for my interview with Diane Scott. So hi Diane, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Please tell the listeners a little about yourself, where you're from, and what you do.
1: Sure. So I am an actress and a children's book author and stepmom and a pit advocate. So I have a lot of different things going on. <laughs> yeah, I, I fell in love with pit bulls about nine years ago and I've always loved animals, but um they've kind of taken over my life. we kind of live in a zoo, my husband and me and my my two stepsons. And um yeah there's just there's just always so much going on. So I um I created a children's book series about them and I have an Instagram called The Tale of Two Pities and they just share the truth about what pit bulls really are and how beautiful they are and, um, just try to bust as many myths about them as possible in a nutshell. <laughs> Wonderful. And I'd love to
0: know more about your, your children's book, books, the, the tale of two Pities.
1: Yeah. So it's a five-part children's book series and, each book is written from the perspective of one of our pets, we have two pit bull mixes and four cats. So it's as you can imagine, it's like, I never run out of material to write about. Um, So each book is written from one of the one of their perspectives and their true stories about like how they met, like, when we got another cat and how we integrate how they integrated together and the friendships that happened. And, you know, I really I wrote these books to really help help kids kind of view animals maybe a little bit differently instead of like objects that we possess or like things that we own you know they are each they're they each have you know their individual personalities they're each different but each have different needs and it's really up to us as humans since we're in charge of them to become their leaders to really find out what are their triggers, especially for dogs? Um, what are their triggers? What do what they like? What do they don't like? What do they not like? Um, respect their space. Yeah, just kind of see them as different, differently than I think a lot of kids maybe see them. Um, and I think I, just hoping to kind of help them gain a whole new level of respect as a, a dog or cat owner um, and then to inspire them to adopt adopt animals. Wonderful. So how did your love for pit bulls begin? So I used to be somebody like many of many people are, I think. Um, I kind of believed what the media had told me about pit bulls, you know, and I, I didn't really like, I don't remember a certain t- point in time where I was like, I learned this, you know, it was just kind of, it, it kind of goes into your subconscious. You hear things on the news and you hear you know, scary headlines and they're really painted in this bad light. And in 2012, my husband and I wanted to adopt our first dog together and we saw this pit pit bull mix and he had been abandoned by his owner, which I think is just terrible. He had had him for a year and returned him to the shelter because he had too much energy. So basically the guy would leave for work every day and leave Hurley, who we named him later, just like locked in the kitchen and he would come home and the kitchen would be like torn apart or like not on it's like yeah yeah of course that's gonna happen dude wow that's shocker so anyway when I saw the the picture of the dog and I I saw you know the description and obviously you could tell by the way it looked I'm like this is a pit bull I'm like are you sure this is safe like isn't this aren't they dangerous and my husband kind of he laughed at me he's like no dad those are those are all myths those aren't true and I was like I don't know anything about this but I know that I trust you so let's do it (laughs) and so we went and um, picked up this guy had not a freaking clue what I was doing actually the funny thing is my husband was working the day that I picked him up so I went to the shelter all by myself picked up this you know adopted this pit bull who did have a ton of energy and took him home like and I remember driving home being like I don't I don't know what I'm doing right now. This could go terribly wrong. Like, what am I doing? But it didn't take me long to just to see that everything that I had thought and believed for some reason, you know, things that I'd heard was just all complete BS. Most loving freaking dog I've ever had. Never once did I feel unsafe or like he was going to snap or he had lock jaw or any of those things that you kind of hear. And he passed away when he was only four. He had lymphoma, which was just awful. He, he, we found out that he had it and then he was gone in a few months. And something about like losing a pet really early, like impacts you in a different way because, um, you know, you just, everything is amplified, like, and everything that I learned from him and I I just was so, I, I couldn't believe how wrong I'd been, you know? So I really wanted to honor him. So I created my Instagram while he was still alive, um, a tale of two Pitties, just for fun. I started writing books, but after he died, it really amped it up another level. I'm like, I need to like become a voice for these dogs because I can't even believe how wrong I was. And I know that there are like billions of other people out there, you know, who believe the same. So that started my journey.
0: That's awesome sorry that he yeah. died so soon but that oh, part's thank not you. So awesome
1: but no it was but you know there also there is like I can look back and see this this interesting beauty in it because it's like he was here to teach me so many things and not just like by the way pit bulls are good okay bye you know <laughs> but he just taught me so much about myself and how to become a leader and you know just compassion and seeing animals in such a different way but even though I had been an animal lover my whole life I am. Um, I really started to look at them differently. just, I just find them fascinating. So, and so now I, so when he passed away, we had another pit bull that has a tale of two pities. So she was left behind and he had basically raised her from a puppy. And so, I mean, the whole house, all the cats, every, when he died, it was like, everybody knew it was just horrible. And we knew that we needed to get, we needed to adopt another dog like fast. So we found another guy who is, um, basically saved me like I call him my my healer dog but um and he fit in perfectly with the family so now again we have two pit bull mixers and four cats and lots of humans
0: how do they all get along
1: that's so many animals it's a lot of freaking animals here (laughs) um my husband and I have gotten really good at integrating the relationships between the cats and the dogs like because over time you know we we um somehow we're up to four cats which actually one of my vets advised against she's like four is, is don't get more don't get any more she's like four after that i'm like i know we're not we want we're not um but so each time like a new cat would come in or or the new dog when he came in we just we got really good about um knowing how to introduce them like you know slowly but surely it's just animals need to get used to each other's smells and they need to get desensitized by just the other one being there. And if you, really le- if you really like make sure to respect both of them, make sure both of them feel safe, especially the cat, um, restrain the dog, you know, have these, if they're in the same room, the dog is restrained, let them see each other. And then, you know, slowly but surely over time, they just, it's not as exciting, they coexist. And some of them even become really good friends. <laughs> Yeah. You, you've had, uh, a
0: pretty viral video of one of your pit bulls that became like best friends with one of your cats. And it was even like on the Ellen show. Can you tell us more about that experience?
1: Yeah. So, so Hurley, our, our dog who passed away, um, when we had him and our other dog Wednesday at the beginning, um, Uh, we I think we had we had two cats at the time and then we decided to get a kitten just because we're like let's just get another one so we went up to three so Chewy the kitten we adopted him he's a main he's a main coon he's just like a total like little lion again we had we had kind of gotten good at the integration of the new the new cat or the new dog um, but it was just so funny so introducing uh, Chewy and Hurley like it was very intense at the beginning like Hurley it appeared that Hurley may want to eat Chewy (laughs) and I remember thinking this is not going to go like this is never going to get better but we kept at it and a few months into it um I think Chewy the the cat was like two months old and they just started just started to become inseparable Chewy would follow him around everywhere and it almost became curly it was like all right bro like it started to get a little annoying Chewy was always there but they started to sleep together. They started, like, they would cuddle together. Chewie was always following him around. They would, like, snuggle. So I just started filming it, and um, it was just ridiculous. Like, it, it seemed like it was out of a cartoon, like, things that don't really happen, you know? Chewie would, like, sit on his back, <laughs> like, things I'd never seen before. So, yeah, so the, the, the clip started to go viral, and somebody reached out and asked to license it, and then a month after Hurley passed away, I got a phone call from a friend and said, dude, Hurley and Chewie are on the Ellen show. And I was like, what? And so I looked it up and I, and I saw it and they opened Ellen's cat week a month after Hurley died, which was, um, you know, really, really like a special gift, you know, having just lost him. So yeah. And they actually, um, so they were on the Ellen show and then they also became a GIF or a GIF. How do you say it? GIF or GIF?
0: depends who i'm talking to i think it's
1: GIF. <laughs> really okay i'm not sure i always say gif but it doesn't nothing either way sounds right um so a gif or a GIF, they became a gif or a GIF on facebook messenger and also iphone messenger or just you know your iphone you just look up like cat and dog and they popped up so they've like become eternal you know just really special having lost him so soon
0: that's incredible. I'm gonna have to go like in my iPhone and
1: search cat and dog and find them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me know them. if they're if they're still there because I haven't looked in a while, but I think they are. So I hope oh, they are. That's awesome. Yeah. So
0: what what's been the the biggest takeaway from adopting all these, not just pit bulls, but also cats?
1: Um definitely I'm a I'm a firm huge believer and advocate for adopting animals as opposed to buying them. Um I have a lot of friends and even family who, who have purchased their dogs from a breeder. And I don't, I don't, I, I, I won't ever do that personally. I just, I just know that I've, I, you know, I've volunteered at shelters. I've just, and I've just, I know I'm aware of how many homeless animals there are who need homes, but I still, that doesn't, you know, take anything away from how awesome their pets are. Oh my gosh, I'm obsessed with, with those dogs. Um, but I just think it's really important to at least educate, people um on how amazing animal uh, shelter animals are because a lot of people think that they might be damaged goods or like oh he's a bait dog from you know some you know fighting ring he's he's like it's it's not you know that's never gonna work or it's um he's not gonna be able to be rehabilitated or whatever. And I just don't think that anybody, any animal is um past the point of no return, you know. So I just yeah, I think I think uh yeah biggest takeaway is just continuing to advocate for adopting for training as well I think that's really important with dogs I learned that the hard way and didn't train the puppy that we got after Hurley died because he was like so friendly and everything was you know it was just the guy and then suddenly he went through puberty and he's like oh I don't like other dogs I was like oh oh crap <laughs> and now you're huge and I don't know how to handle you so I learned a valuable lesson to train your dog like the moment that you get him even if he, you know, is a good dog, because you just don't know. Um, So yeah, training your dog, no matter what size. um, We have been attacked by a lot of small dogs who clearly aren't trained. And um, yeah, so I think any size, any breed, train your dog, become his leader. Don't let him, don't let him become your leader because he will, if you don't step up and um, yeah, and adopt or at least look into it, you know, at least, um, see if you're wrong about it, you know, that all sheltered animals are damaged or whatever, because I don't believe they are. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm personally
0: a huge advocate for adopting for those who might not be, why is it so important to adopt as opposed to get an animal from a breeder?
1: Yeah. So I have, man, breeders. Um, I don't, I know people will disagree with me on this, but I don't, I don't, I don't understand how you how someone can, what is the word? Um, make, think that it's okay. What is the word I'm looking for, Sierra? How can they compensate? How can they rationalize? Thank you. <laughs> how can they rationalize, you know, all these, all these shelter animals be putting to sleep while they're, you know, breeding dogs, I mean, and also think about it from like a female dog's point of view, that sounds like a terrible life to me. And I'm sure all the conditions aren't, you know, just horrible, but like, just think about it for a minute, you know? Um, So you're breeding these dogs, you're selling them for thousands of dollars to people. And I don't know how breeders work. I know some just will sell them to anybody who will give them money, which that's really freaking scary. I mean, obviously if they're paying a lot of money, they're probably not weird people, weird, it's subjective, but um, yeah, where was it going with that? So if you're, you're spending all your, you're, you're breeding these dogs, you're selling them for thousands of dollars, while all these animals in the shelter are being put to sleep, because they've been there for a year, or they've been overlooked, or they're, they hate it in the shelter, and they just can't survive there. So they're put down. Um, and then all the homeless animals, my God, there's cats everywhere in our neighborhood, because they just keep breeding and we have two we actually have six cats here because two of them adopted us two strays so they live on our porch so you know there's just um I just can't rationalize that I just don't think anyone could like be able to rationalize it to me where it would make sense you know these um there's just so many that need a home and there's so many dogs in the shelter who are purebred which people don't know you could literally go to a shelter and be like oh that's a oh and I only have to spend sixty dollars, <laughs> um, and not five thousand. So, yeah, I just think there's um, there's no way to get around it. You know, it doesn't make sense to me, and I just think it's wrong.
0: Absolutely. And if you are looking for a specific breed, absolutely check the shelters. And there are breed-specific rescues out there.
1: If you're -hmm. you're looking for a
0: Pomeranian, go check out Pomeranian rescues. There's whippet rescues, pug rescues, whatever. Like there's rescues for just about every breed out there because it doesn't really matter who gets them. They all end up abandoned for some reason.
1: It's awful. Right? No, you're so, that's a very good point. There's, there's totally specific rescues for specific dogs and, and yeah. And you, and some people will buy a dog for $5,000 and I'm sorry, but, just because he's bred does not guarantee that he's going to be a perfect dog. That is a complete BS um, lie that, that, you know, they tell you like this dogs have their own personality. Like you can't just buy a dog and they're like, Oh yeah, he's just, he's already like perfect. And you don't have to do anything just because he's a purebred. That's, that's, that's that's, no, 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 no. Um, These dogs require a lot of work. So maybe he'll, you know, be more athletic or, or a better listener or something or whatever he's bred to be, but you still have to put a lot of work into it. Um, you still need to train him. And I think a lot of people buy these dogs and are like, Oh, it's a purebred. It's fine. And then they can't handle him. They don't know what to do. So he ends up either homeless or, um, at a shelter or the worst thing is, and if I ever see anyone do this, I don't know what I'm going to do, but people literally will take their dogs and open the door on the side of the road and leave. I'm sure you've seen footage of that it makes me sick. Um, but regardless, yeah, these dogs just, they end up homeless or in the shelter no matter if they're purebred or mixed or whatever. Yeah.
0: And like there there are situations where maybe your life situation changes or maybe for some reason you cannot handle that animal, but it is then your responsibility to find them a new home. You don't just get to abandon them or drop them off at the shelter. Like yes, it's great that the shelter is there, but for example, we had we had a cat that I'm not really sure what was wrong with him, but he kept attacking my son to the point that like, we literally oh, had to no. take my son to the emergency room twice because of this cat. So he's my uncle's barn cat. Now he's, uh, fat, well, he's happy. Yeah. I didn't just, it, like,
1: back- dump him at a shelter. Yeah. I found somewhere for him to go. <laughs> see. And that's, that's very responsible because you probably like you can tell that that he would be like fabulous in that <laughs> environment, you know, cause he clearly like wanted to, he needed things to go after. Um, yeah, I, 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 agree with you. There's, there's certain circumstances, of course, if, if, if it involves your child, no, yeah, you need to put your child first, but again, it's your responsibility to rehome the dog and not just in the first person who wants him or whatever. Um, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to, I was just going to say, if you, another thing that I would say to people who want to get an animal, um, before you do decide to do that, like write out a budget think of every or look it up online how much it costs to have an animal because it is way more than you think and I'm not trying to deter anyone from doing it but but ultimately it's better if you say oh I didn't realize it was going to be this much or this much time I can't do that then get the animal and then have to return him because like the psychological damage to the just I can't you know they they're not stupid they know that you're bringing them home and then you're turning taking them back so just do as much research as you can before you before you make that commitment. And then if you do and you have to rehome for you know the last resort, then again, it's your responsibility to find them the best place to, to land them.
0: 100%. Uh what if any role do you think breeders should have?
1: I've never been asked that before. Role is in What do you mean by that?
0: Well, there's there's some people who think breeders have an important role in preserving
1: breeds, for example. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know if I can answer that because I don't, I just, I think there's, there's such, um, there's so many dogs available right now. I can't, again, I cannot find a way to rationalize why we need to have breeders. Like I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know. What do you think now? I'm curious. What's your thought on that? I think it needs to
0: be regulated more because it's not being done humanely it's not okay yeah being yeah. done in a way that is like there's there's an excess population of dogs out there that do not have homes and maybe it sounds a little bit eugenics but like that's that's the whole point of spaying and neutering dogs and cats so that they don't end up with so many right. everywhere but right. Like we, we have a responsibility as their caretakers to make sure that they don't end up in unsafe conditions. And I feel like breeders do perpetuate unsafe conditions for the dogs that they end up selling because especially if they're not sending them off spayed and neutered already, right. People might then end up Mm. breeding them and just, it creates a lot of problems. So I think breeders should have to be licensed and regulated.
1: Yeah. And you know what? It's really, I remember looking up, do you have to have a license to be a breeder? And I I, I was like, what? You don't, are you kidding me? And that's what you just said. People buying dogs from breeders to just breed and these, these, um, backyard breeders, these, I don't know, the the puppy mills, all that, like they're not, they don't know what they're doing. I, yeah, I've, I've actually heard of some situations. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good. It's not good. You just reminded me of something, but, um, No, you should definitely have a license to breed. And I don't think it needs, I think it needs to be very, um, limited, you know, I don't think anyone should just be able to apply and get it or yeah. And definitely puppy mills and, and backyard breeders, people just doing it from their homes. Like I don't, it's just, that's not right. And it's just, like you said, just completely adds to the problem for so, sure or, yeah. or spain and neuter or, or if they're going to sell their puppies have them spayed and neutered already that might deter a lot of these backyard breeders from even happening you know exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
0: I do I do right. have a couple friends who they have well maybe friends isn't the right word people that I knew in high school <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. they they are backyard breeders now and I'm just like what is wrong with um, you like
1: pure it's candy? like a quick buck like oh. yeah yeah and then how do you like isn't there like a whole process of how to do it and how to care for the animal like you it, it's not like you just breed them and it's like oh this thing is perfect right like isn't there a whole process to it like which is why so many of these dogs come out with you know problems or flaws or whatever flaws yeah so which, I yeah. think every dog is perfect but yeah <laughs> hello it's a, <laughs> it's a dog it's a dog they literally it's literally god and, and a puppy
0: Body <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yep. you're in a unique position that you have celebrity status that you're able to advocate more. Can you tell us a bit about how you've kind of used that elevated position to advocate and promote this message of adopt, don't shop?
1: yeah, so I actually was able to be well, I have my my Instagram, which I've grown it, its has almost hundred and five thousand followers now, which. I, I wish it was 105 million. That would be great. But you know, it's it, it's just building, building it. And I have a really strong point of view, so I think I actually like to turn a lot of people away. But I, again, I'm a, I'm attracting the right people that I, you know, I know that I want to be in my my group. But um, but so I, I definitely get to sh- scream from the rooftops, you know, my um on my platform there, and then um, all my social media platforms. But I recently got to be a part of a really cool film called Superboys and the director found me because he's a pit bull guy and he offered me a part because he's he's seen I do I have a web series on my Instagram called Neighborhood Watch that I do with one of my dogs. Like he's my co-star. It's just like ridiculous. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. But he actually found me found me through that and offered me a role in this movie. And the movie was so cool. It was um it was about a man and his little brother who had autism And it was very much shining a, like a bright, beautiful light on people with special needs. And that's really important to me because my niece has Down syndrome. Um, and so I'm, I'm an advocate for that too. And really, you know, just talking about it and spreading awareness about how amazing these people are and they deserve a chance to live, you know? Um, and then also the, another co-star in the film was a (laughs) pit bull. So just, just, I feel like I just keep attracting all these cool things to kind of, um, share, you know, and, um, hopefully things that people, not hopefully, but I think things that people don't really think about often and, um, just really interesting things that I get to uh, be a part of. So. That is really
0: interesting. What is the most important thing for people to know about pit bulls?
1: Um, (laughs) most important thing. They're not what you think you are. They're, they're not what you think they are. Um, unless you think they're awesome. Um, so if you were, if you were like me, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think I would have run from a pit bull, but I would never have approached it. Um, they're just, they're, they're the biggest dorks I've ever met. They think they're lap dogs. They are so full of love. They so want to please you. And they're really, really loyal. And, um, I just think, I think everybody needs to Give them a chance. And another thing that you need to know about pit bulls is they, you know, because they're so big and strong, that's where they've gotten into trouble. You know, like that's why they're used as bait dogs and, you know, all the horrible things because um, it's probably, I would imagine, pretty easy to turn a pit bull mean and vicious if you treat it in a certain way because of their, you know, their natural physical state. Um, so you do need to train him or her. And that's a really big responsibility that lies on our shoulders as pit bull owners. Um, and especially because they have this bad rap already, we need to take it upon ourselves to make sure our dogs are in line. We are their leaders. We can keep them safe. We can keep others safe. Um, and if you can do that, get a pit bull and thank me later or a pit bull mix or a pit type dog, because there's so the the umbrella now, just keeps growing, you know, because of all the. Breeding and yeah, so they're amazing. Excellent. Well,
0: thank you so much. <laughs> it's been such a great time talking with you.
1: You too. Thank you for having me on. You're lovely.
0: You can see more of Diane Scott on her social media Facebook, Diane Scott, Instagram, Actress Diane Scott, TikTok, at Actress Diane Scott, Tale of Two Pities on Facebook, A Tale of Two Pities with a number two. Instagram, A Tale of Two Pities, again with the number two. And The Neighborhood Watch Show is at The Neighborhood Watch Show on Instagram. And now for comics. My latest comic, Hoodie, perfectly captures my reaction when the human behind Raccoon Robbie gave me one of his hoodies. In comics news, Galactic Con, a Baltimore-area comic convention, had their largest turnout ever at their event last weekend with 150 vendors and close to 1,000 attendees. Cornwall, Ontario resident Neil Carrier has fulfilled a lifelong dream and published a comic book called Pip the Goblin. He quickly sold out of his first print run and is ordering more. You can order a copy by contacting Neil through his email, n-e-i-l dot C-A-R-R-I-E-R-E at gmail.com. Alright, next up is journalism. I'm continuing to follow the Lori and Chad Daybell trials, as well as the other ongoing local trial with scrutiny. I watched Lori and Chad's arraignments and continue to transcribe the Facebook livestream videos of the man involved in our local case. As this is a local case and someone that I know in real life, I'm still handling how I talk about that particular case with a lot of sensitivity until the book is done. Now for my interview with Tony Russo. Oh yeah, I've I've had to mute my phone because I just got a I just got an email from my kid's teacher. It's like we need to have another conference. He got in trouble again today.
2: Like, of well, you. I have something very funny to tell you. I think. Yeah. Um. Where Zoom? My my wife just called a parent. I wonder you don't live on the Delmarva Peninsula, do you?
0: No, <laughs> I'm in Canada. <laughs> I'm in Alberta.
2: <laughs> I, no, I, I heard the show. I was just it was just silly because I'm like, all right, I'm going to go do this. She's like, I'm going to try this parent one more time before I go to bed. <laughs>
0: yeah my kid he's great but he doesn't know how to keep his mouth shut during class
2: (laughs) that's right eventually class will be over
0: Yeah. yeah unless he's like me and goes back to school a bajillion times
2: i went to school my the last time i went to school i i started college when i was 30 so i'm for that
0: yeah yeah i'm i'm currently working on my fourth degree (laughs) <laughs> i'm a i'm a professional bachelor degree getter
2: why not right <laughs> my mom's was, like just
0: get your phd
2: <laughs> i don't know if i'm interested enough in any one thing
0: exactly exactly yeah we might as well uh, start the interview so <laughs> so we can all get this all into the into the actual podcast mm-hmm. so right. hi tony thanks so much for joining me on the show please tell the listeners a little about yourself where you're from and what you do
2: Sure. My name is Tony Russo. I am a journalist working on Maryland's Eastern Shore. Um, I've got a book coming out called Dragged Into the Light, Truthers, Reptilians, Super Soldiers, and Death Inside an Online Cult. It's about um, the Sherry Shriner cult. They actually put out a couple documentaries on it, and there's one documentary now that's out on Vice TV, and I'm featured in that more heavily than i thought i would be and i'm trying to come to terms with it frankly
0: all right so it sounds like there's a lot of conspiracy theories going into that uh, i don't know a whole lot about sherry schreiner can you tell us a bit about that
2: well sherry schreiner was this woman who had a blog talk radio show and blog talk is uh kind of a channel that's that's in the middle. It's it's, yes, it's a podcast, but not really a podcast. You can, you have to either stream it or listen to it streamed. Um, it doesn't download. But there are a lot of fringe types on this uh, platform. And she was one of them. And she had a bunch of followers. And she was making, I, I think, a comfortable, if not more than comfortable living. And one day, one of her um, acolytes, his name was Stephen Minio, came to her and said hey i have a wife um he didn't have a wife he had a girlfriend who he just said it was his wife and i'd like her to be in the cult with us and sherry said sure and then sherry didn't like the woman so sherry said to steven hey i don't i this woman's a witch and she's gonna kill you you have to leave her and then steven started this war online against sherry schreiner um and then a couple months later um the girlfriend killed him <laughs> and shot him in the head i'm sorry to laugh but every time i say that i'm like no one knows what this next sentence is except for me and i know what their face is going to be when i say this sentence and i just laugh at the face that i haven't seen yet and i got to see the faces so thank you very much (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) wow yes and so i kind of took this whole thing apart for this book and as it turns out sherry was um she liked to separate couples. She demanded this kind of, um, emphatic respect. She liked hurting people, I think. And the sad, the sadder part is, you know, there's a young woman, she was 22, um, and she committed suicide, um, in, um, in Michigan actually. And that's the, that's kind of the, the, Real hook for the story. I mean, Steven, so there's Steven Minio and there's Barbara Rogers. Um, those that was a couple. Barbara is still in jail. She um may or may not have shot Stephen in the head. It's I'm sorry. She was holding the gun when it went off. And what is at issue is so was he. And so the question is was he trying to help her help him commit suicide? Um, or was it an accidental shooting or did she just put the gun against his head and pull the trigger? Um, the third one is the least likely, in, in, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, but there is so much that goes on and what happens is it's because that they get involved in these, they get committed to these ideals. And once they're locked into the ideal Anything is preferable to giving it up, and so, including death, I guess is what uh, is is how it turns out.
0: That sounds even more nuts than the the one that I'm working on. The I don't know if you've been following the the Lori Vallow and the Chad Daybell case, but I'm working on a book about that, and that one's
2: okay. Awkward. So, is Lori Vallow did she go to Hawaii? Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, no, no. That is. Um, so before I was working on this, I actually wrote for um, wrote for a company, wrote for the company that produces uh, Sword and Scale, which is a big true crime podcast. And yeah, they. so all of these things, just things I would never know about. I had zero interest in true crime. <laughs> I might still have zero interest in true crime, but what happens is when these stories present themselves to you, then, you know, you, you go with, I mean, I I read true crime books, but I don't watch, I don't watch a lot of the television shows and things like that. You know, I, I like to get into a story in a book for that reason, um, watching the documentary, I had to stop, um, only because you can't hear this on the podcast, but I'm a big fellow. And I don't know if you've ever seen your huge self lumbering around on television, but it is really difficult sometimes. (laughs) So I've stopped watching, but um, the couple episodes that I saw, it was interesting, the choices that they had to make because they were using video as a medium, you know, it's certainly super compelling and, my, I mean I get texts all night when the show is on because people are like did this really happen did this but the in print I think you have an opportunity to in print you have a different audience like when you're telling a story in print someone is saying I to, I want to think about this I want to take my time I want to go at my own pace if I read a sentence that I think is, weird i want to look at it for a while and i want it let it i want to. i want to stop and look up the word i want to stop and look up the context like why would he say this and that is something that you can't really do in any other medium um which is why i think it's um I, again my, my book is pretty not the story is the same and the point is radically different and that's what's really interesting about the process of seeing something that you also wrote from someone else's eyes who also like we had the same information we wrote two different stories and that is very cool in and of itself
0: yeah I I, I love looking at that my so I I have a grad degree in British literature and my focus for my thesis was the different portrayals of Tolkien's work across the books and the video games and the movies. Yeah. Looking at how people take the same source material and turn it into the different ways it's presented. That's that, that's what makes my brain tick. I love it.
2: <laughs> well, then I, I would like to ask you, I'd like to tell you something. And if you disagree with me, I would really love to hear it. I can't imagine when pe- I'm not, I'm sorry. I, I can not imagine it it confuses me when people get upset about the movie version of something, because this is in the, for me in the 21st century, like you can't tell, maybe it's because I I do write books or whatever, but you can't tell the same story visually that you can in the book. I just would rather everyone say this was inspired by this book. And then maybe nobody would be, I don't know why people get mad. Um, Certainly I would make different choices. If I were making the movie, but there's lots of movies like that. But this idea that a movie, a movie is inspired by a book and a movie is never a book. It's it, They're two different mediums doing such radically different things. Do you find that or am I way off base?
0: I mean, I I see both sides because as someone who loves reading books and then I go watch the movie and they left out my favorite part. I'm just like, how could you leave that out? That's so important.
2: I paid $20 to see that one scene, right?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Like I I get where they're coming from, but also it's a completely different medium and they're telling the story in a completely different way. And sometimes it's a completely different story that they're telling, Mm. especially with comic book adaptations. Like I have a a friend who writes for Marvel and like he writes the comic books for Marvel, Mm. but I also have an acquaintance that wrote the script for Maybe acquaintance isn't. I spoke to him once at a convention. He wrote the script for Avengers Endgame. I know. (laughs) And (laughs) like his mom was just like, "Oh wow, so so you took the comic books and turned them into the movies?" And he's like, "No, not at all."
2: (laughs) Please don't ever say that in public. (laughs) (laughs) That's not certainly. And certainly don't ever say it at a comic book convention.
0: No, <laughs> but he was—he said that. That's what his mom said at the comic convention. Everyone was right. just like, "Oh <laughs> no," <laughs> because that's not at all what it's like.
2: Right, you're and- taking
0: it completely from scratch, basically. Yes, it's the same basic details and the same characters. But it's completely different medium. You, almost
2: you have, have to, to communicate it in a different way. You want to communicate, and also one of the interesting things about our story is there are two, there are two dominant themes, and they chose one, and I chose a different one, and so their interest was different from my interest. And it was, it was fun during the interview process because I, I, they interviewed me for like 12 hours. It was, it was almost like being interrogated. Uh, (laughs) But their interest was to tell the story about the effect of social media in kind of weaponizing people. And that's a, that's a valid point. It's, it's a point I don't agree with wholeheartedly, but Certainly there's all the evidence is there to um, support that. And mine, my thesis has more to do with the corrupting power of losing faith in religious and political institutions, because I think that is I think it's more insidious. And I think it's more. At true, true accurate it's this is the thing with youtube um which is the which is a primary medium we're talking it's facebook and youtube are the two mediums that sherry used to the greatest effect she was on blog talk radio but her youtube and facebook presence was really what drove her popularity and certainly her revenue um but i am just one of those kind of turn it off if you if it's bad turn it off You know, and the argument and it's an excellent argument and there's science behind it. And I don't think that they're wrong, but the argument is, well, these people were fed this because people knew that they would like it. And I, I get that, but why were they looking? So my book is about why they were looking and I think the documentary is why people took advantage of the fact that they were looking. And so those two things, I think, go together pretty well. But they're certainly, you know, oppositional at, at the very least.
0: Almost like two sides of the same coin.
2: <laughs> exactly. Two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Either way, the conspiracy people are making it really hard on the rest of us. <laughs> and people are profiting.
0: Cherry oh, profits,
2: sure, for YouTube sure. profits. I do not profit.
0: Yeah, I once upon a time, when I was young and naive, had a show on Blog Talk Radio. Oh, really? Yeah i I was with a network. Um, they were. I'm not going to name them because they're still out there, and uh-huh. the the guy who owns the network and I did not leave on friendly terms. But shocking, um, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it seems like such a reasonable place to be.
0: <laughs> well, I. I worked for his wife Uh and she is a full-time school teacher, a very normal person. He, uh, I'm not really sure if he has a job, like a job job, which like fine, not everybody does, but he has this like podcast network on blog talk radio and he runs this Facebook group and he's one of those. Um, (laughs) And you, you can see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Um, And he kind of, He's very charismatic at first, and as an aspiring journalist, being given a platform for your ideas oh, yeah. is appealing. Absolutely. So I got sucked in, and then he wanted me to advertise the other shows that he was showing on there. And I'm listening to these ads, and they're like, GMOs are the devil, and all yeah. these like, wacky things. I'm just like, uh, I'm out. I think I made it like six months before I was just like, I can't do this anymore.
2: (laughs) The worst thing about trying to make a living kind of on your own terms is just that you're like, all right, I'll do this. And then after a while, it's like, you know what? I need to make, I need to make more to be doing this. Like I've, you know, as you, as you go on, I think as one goes on in one's journalism career you start to be able to say, you know what? I don't have to do that anymore. You know, like I haven't written advertorial in like three years, and it feels good. And I will write it tomorrow <laughs> if if there's money attached to it. But I don't look for advertorial work in the way that I had to look for it in the past because I'm lucky. You know, I'm the because I'm married to a woman who has a straight job and I have health care, right? And that's that's important, right? Not, not needing to, not needing to get a straight job makes it easier to make different choices when you're selecting what work you can and can't do. But I've got to be honest, you know, I am, it's, it's time to, as you know, books aren't like living, making kind of endeavors. And it's, and it's time to start to think about, all right, what am I going to do next? I got this, I got this book out and there's this weird postpartum almost thing where it's like, well, I just finished, you know, I read it 10 times (laughs) to make sure it got right. You know, the, the, you know, the publisher calls, and then you spend three hours fighting over whether this comma makes sense here or whether this word should be hyphenated or whether it's two words. And then you read it again. And then you're like, I would like to tell people that this book is good, but I can tell you for a fact that the 10th time you read it, you're like, eh, I get it, <laughs> you know? So what I've been saying is I would be, I would be honored if anyone bought it and flabbergasted if anybody read it twice, but I don't recommend reading it 10 times. 10 times is too many times. It's not that good a book.
0: <laughs> oh, I know that feeling. I'm in the editing process right now and oh, it it's is. Brutal.
2: You're like, I, I got to get it. And I- but that's what you toy with. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should get a straight job because I don't know if I can do this anymore. This is, it's just such a slog, you know? It's very much, you know, I'm not the first person to make this uh, analogy, but it's its very marriage-like. It's like, oh, we're dating. This is great. And you need to knock out, you know, 10 chapters. And you're like, oh, we're married. Let's get everything organized. And like, do I really have to look at you for the rest of my life? <laughs> And then you start it again. You're like a serial divorced person when you're a writer.
0: Oh, I love that metaphor.
2: It's like getting married every two years.
0: Oh, my goodness. I just went through a divorce. I don't think I could do that again. But I do it every time I write a book.
2: (laughs) It really is.
0: Oh, goodness. Yeah. I mean, I have a full time job at a magazine, so I'm lucky in a way. Yeah. But I also like. I have a full-time job at a magazine and then I write after hours.
2: <laughs> it, I try to explain it to my daughters this way and also kind of to explain it to myself. It's like when you're a young person and you're like, I just want to do what I love all the time. And then you choose to be a writer and you do like when I was, when I was working in newspapers, that's what it was. It was like, you know, you write all day and then you come home you're like, yeah, I think I'll write. <laughs> Like it is exhausting and it is, it is mentally brutal, but also what else are you going to do? Like, you know, you're going to not write. Did you just watch two and a half men? Like what, what else is there? You know, you're writing, you're thinking about writing, you're reading and you're writing. And sometimes you're getting paid and sometimes you're not getting paid, but certainly the act of sitting down And trying to figure out the words that go with what you think, it's something that you get a taste for. And once you have a taste for it, then everything is an excuse to be able to do that, including writing advertorial. Yeah, sure. This is that we love our customers. We make the best oranges, Julius's in the whole world or whatever. Um, But now I can get back to the serious journalism that I'm trying to do in the hour and a half i can cut out in the day for the you know paying the bills
0: oh yeah oh yeah i know how it is yeah before i had the (laughs) magazine job i was doing advertorial for uh, yeah
2: no everyone does it a friend of mine wrote porn (laughs) for a while Uh, yeah he was talking about it and he's like that's the bottom he's like he's like and i could i if tomorrow i would do it again i wouldn't love it but and you know 'Cause I was teasing him because I had been he got one of my old advertorial jobs and then he got a different gig where he was like writing product descriptions for jewelry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's like, but what what else am I gonna do? I not I'm not fit to have like a a real job, you know, where people are like, okay, sit here for eight hours and then get up and go home. It's like, no, I need to I need to at least use my mind a little bit when I'm at work.
0: Yeah, every author I talk to, like, I'm not qualified for anything else. I'm practically unemployable. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I love the I love the the whole barefoot thing. Um I work uh I worked when I was a reporter, I was a reporter um at the beach. So I worked for like a beach weekly for a bunch of years. And then I worked at the on the Chesapeake Bay, so it's a lot of very maritimey things. And at first, like I was I realized that if I didn't wear sandals, people didn't trust me as much. They're like, "Why are Why are you in shoes? What are you doing here?" Right? And so you would just, you know. And then once I started doing that, it there was almost no going back. I got a job as the uh, business editor at a regional daily. It was a good job, and I loved it there. And um, I just got a better opportunity and had to leave, but when i was there my first day of work i came and i'm the business editor right so i'm wearing a tie and you know shoes and socks and things like that and they were giving me a hard time they're like you know you don't have to wear a tie i'm like i'm wearing pants like at this point if i feel i feel like if i'm gonna put on pants i may as well go the whole way <laughs> and now and now in this post-apocalyptic world the idea of wearing pants that zipper is just repugnant, repugnant to me. I'm like, eh, do I really need to leave the house ever again? Because I mean, I was built for the apocalypse. I missed my grandchildren for a year, but now I can see them again. I don't I don't ever have to go anywhere. I'm, this I was built for the apocalypse is all I can say. If, if the apocalypse is like this and I don't have to, like, kill my food or grow it. If it's just I don't get to leave my house ever, I'm fine with that. My wife, we 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 had the best year of our entire marriage. We just sat in the backyard and looked at the pond for like an hour at a time on a Tuesday afternoon. You know, it's like, I'm sorry. Is this, why are people mad? Like why, why are they mad? They can't go out.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I, I miss being able to see my family. I haven't seen my dad since Christmas 2019, but yeah. Like just what's so bad about staying home and not having to put pants on. (laughs) Yeah
2: no oh, no no, and i'm sorry on the off chance that my daughter in massachusetts listens to it i haven't seen her since 2019 either since christmas 2019 and i missed her very much i miss you amanda but other than not being able to see my family and not being able to see my grandchildren it's fine yeah i had a great apocalypse thanks for asking
0: <laughs> that's great hopefully you got lots of writing done <laughs>
2: I wrote a whole book. Yeah, it was. It was just like a very perfect timing. Like I started for real work on the book and they said no one can ever leave the house again. And I'm like, well, good. Then I won't be distracted by pretending I can leave the house. And I was just able to just dig and dig and dig and dig and dig.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, it has been so great chatting with you. Um, Thank you. Before we go, where can people find your work?
2: Uh, You can find me at by Tony Russo on all the social media my website is by Tony Russo.com and if you're interested in seeing the book or um, pre-ordering it which I would encourage you to do you can do that at draggedintothelight.com
0: excellent well thank you again for joining me on the show
2: absolute blast thanks for having me
0: last but not least let's talk about barefooting I took over a month off between episodes and have had lots of time for adventures in that time. Um, In the last few weeks, I've attended a vigil for the 215 children found in an unmarked mass grave at the former Canloops residential school, done a cash egg hunt sponsored by a local business, had a water gun fight in the park with my son, and painted mugs at a ceramic shop. All barefoot, of course. In barefoot news. We're just beginning to understand the long-term effects of COVID-19. A British government survey found that 14% of people who recovered from COVID still had symptoms 12 weeks later. A University of Washington study found that one-third of COVID patients still had symptoms six months later. Yale's Neurology Department has been studying these long-term symptoms, and while the symptoms are clear, the results for them persisting hasn't really given any clues to why it's happening. The long-term post-COVID neurological symptoms have been including memory loss, persistent headaches, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, and nerve damage. Tasha Clark, one of the Yale study participants, was diagnosed with COVID last April and with peripheral polyneuropathy last July. This winter, burning pain in her feet was so bad that she had to go stand barefoot in the snow to get relief. She told Borneo Bulletin, quote, my skin feels like someone is holding a blowtorch to it, end quote. The Yale doctors are investigating an autoimmune link between the neurological symptoms working off a theory that the virus sets off an autoimmune reaction that persists after the actual virus. Other post COVID clinics at Northwestern and Mount Sinai universities are investigating theories involving whether the virus or particles thereof remain in the body after initial infection causing symptoms to remain and recovered patients to continue to test positive. Residents of Whitley Gardens Apartments in Coracon, California, have reached out to the media, public health, and the Department of Housing with complaints about the unbelievably unlivable conditions that the property managers refused to fix. One resident, Vanessa Garcia, has a leaky pipe, causing her carpet to be so damp that mushrooms are growing out of it. When she complained to management, they told her to just remove the mushrooms. They aren't poisonous. Reuben Bustis, another resident, has torn up carpet with nails sticking up where it used to be pinned down. He told KMPH News, We should be able to walk around barefoot in our place. I put in a work order telling them that if they don't fix it and I get infected, I'm giving them a bill, and they signed my work order, but they still haven't done nothing. Resident Serenity Garcia's carpet has the same problem, and she says her son has been cut on the nails. She also is dealing with a cockroach infestation, and several of her electrical outlets malfunction and spark when she tries to use them. Whitley Gardens is a HUD, housing under development, subsidized property managed by Sacramento-based company MBS. That's all for this week's episode. I'll be back with an interview with freelance writer Kenzie Wood next week. Thanks so much for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to sierrathebarefootgirl at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at Sierra the Barefoot, on Facebook as Sierra the Barefoot Girl, on Twitter at Sierra Barefoot, and on TikTok at Sierra is Barefoot. You can follow the podcast itself on Instagram at Barefooting with Sierra. All of my books are available on Amazon. My comics are available on Instagram at World of Possums and Patreon.com slash Possum Pete. Thank you to Legion X for the intro and outro music. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And please share it with a friend
1: if you've enjoyed it. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra.